Hello, I'm Chris Biddle and uh, this is Inside AgriTurf. And uh, if I might say so, Happy New Year. And I do hope those words are fitting for these still strange, uncertain times. This episode, number 56, is the final one in Season 2 of Inside AgriTurf, which uh, ran from uh, May 2021 to the end of the year. Season 3 will launch in the first week of February 2022, and I can promise you another stellar lineup of guests, all with interesting and relevant views. So I wanted to bring you a reminder of some of the standout moments from those at the sharp end of the agriturf industry who graced the podcast during Season 2. There were four themes that I wanted to explore in more detail. The economics of running a dealership, diversity, mental welfare, and issues of succession in a family business. So here's a few short edited extracts from 2021 which highlight all of these issues. First, I wanted to hear the experiences of those running dealerships at different stages of their journey. A new dealership. One celebrating its 25th anniversary and another with a very long history. And their stories were told in a trilogy of episodes that I called Dealernomics. Tim Lane started his new business, ATH Machinery, in Hampshire in the latter half of 2019 in order to supply and service turf care equipment to golf courses and the professional market. Uh, Tim was already well known in the industry, having worked for the multi-branch TH White Group for around 20 years before reaching director level. However, he always had an ambition to run his own outfit and took the plunge just a few months before lockdown paralysed much of the country's personal and business life due to the spreading pandemic. So what were his first thoughts and how did he adapt? Uh, my first reaction was, oh my goodness, what bad timing. <laughs> um, yes, uh, but in, in a, on a serious note, we had to have a quick rethink, uh, mainly because the professional user, uh, like many, many organisations that employ staff, um, didn't know what they needed to do. So a lot of places either shut or were on reduced man, man hours. And uh, therefore, we needed something to do. We've got workshop facilities. We know how to fix stuff. So we actually changed direction quite significantly and focused on local garden machinery. We very quickly identified that we could work remotely, which was a, uh, a phrase that resonated with a lot of customers. You know, you don't need to see us. We can come in. We can pick stuff up. You can pay us electronically. So it really was a contactless service from day one. It's not no secret that I, for some time, have had an ambition to run my own business um, the benefit of my previous employer is, to all intents and purposes, you're running a business but without using your own money. Um, so, yes, it's very different. But it's been an ambition for some time and a number of things came together, Chris, at the right time, which meant that we, we had the opportunity to, to get on and do it. Uh, we live on a farm. I mean, where we are now, we're in amongst farm buildings, uh, which uh, the family farm owns. So I guess we're very fortunate uh, in, in that respect. We have property. We have put our own money into the company. Uh, we know, again, with the professional user in mind, we knew that we'd need to have a significant lump sum to get things going. But, um, well, when we started two years ago, I was doing everything. Um, <laughs> I very quickly realised I needed to convince my wife that she should be a part of it. Yes. Um, and she's been brilliant. You know, it's a baptism of fire there, moving from running a very busy family house to helping out with accounts and VAT returns. Stepping aside from where we started the business and focusing on garden machinery, we very quickly realised that 
because we're in a very affluent area, um, there's a lot of people that own property in and around the Test Valley that have either moved out of London recently or own second homes. So by that nature, they tend to be larger houses with larger gardens. Uh, we've actually got uh, three vehicles in the business now, yeah. uh, a couple of vans and a commercial vehicle. We've got a couple of trailers. Um, but investment in tooling, no, we've had to buy an awful lot. Um, some specialist tooling, hydraulic presses, uh, pullers, those sorts of things. We've just invested in a new MIG welding plant. And they're, you know, for a small business, they're, they're a big investment, but something we have to have. Uh, and I guess slightly naive of me when we started, um, having dealt with multiple larger franchises in my previous career... The naivety was assuming that people would be interested and, and, and would want to come and talk to effectively a one-man band. The realisation was that we needed to earn our wings. Um, we needed to get a couple of years under our belt before such time as a major supplier might look at us. So the first two years, we've, we've tried not to say no to anything, simply because we, you know, we, we started, we didn't know it at the time, but we started the business in the pandemic, so... The word no just couldn't exist. Every opportunity we, we had to explore, no matter how small they might seem, it's amazing what, uh, what those opportunities could turn into. So, yes, I think we, we've definitely made a lot of mistakes, but we've learned an awful lot at the moment. We, we had a business plan when yeah. we started the business based around dealing with a professional user. Um, we had a business plan that helped us with the uh, cash needed and the cash flow. A lot of that went out of the window when we realised that COVID was here. We're, whilst we're juggling a lot at the moment, the business needs to decide what it wants to do, sure. and what it's going to do long term. But when you're a one-man band, my goodness, you have to fight for everything. I mean, you really do, and you have to be tenacious. You have to push and identify every opportunity. The personal challenge is going to be addressing ambition for the business over the funding needed to, to feed that ambition. It's a, it's, it's a fantastic industry and so many, so many opportunities still exist. Now, if that sounded all a little bit echoey, it was because it was recorded in the farm's former dairy, which is now Tim's office. The importance of funding was also the theme of my next conversation with Steve Halley, who runs Cheshire Turf Machinery, who celebrated its 25th anniversary in 2021, having, with his partners, bought the business from uh, the Electrolux Group um, of Flymo fame, of course. What works is, is still working today for us, really. We manage our money very, very well. One of the uh, things that we put into into action when we set the business up was really keeping control of stock. We had a lot of assistance. We asked for it up from from the people at, at that time. It was Laley that were distributing the the Toro product. We explained the position that we were in, and Laley in particular, they they offered us some demonstration machines. It made life so much easier with the the commercial. Uh, policy that worked out okay because we didn't have to stock a lot of product outside demonstration machines so it it it, it worked pretty well for us and it's I suppose an ethos that we've carried through that we you know make sure we collect our money what we did from the off is we uh, did an awful lot on finance we we worked hard to make sure that that uh, people had a finance option, you know, leases or um, higher purchase. But it was getting somebody to fund the business 
Mm-hmm. Um, so if we were, you know, we were selling a machine, we were getting the money before we had to pay for it. We were turning the stock really, really quickly. The money was in the bank. That was the plan. I remember. <laughs> I remember we were about four or five weeks in, and uh, I don't know if you call him, but you don't call him a bank manager now. He, he <laughs> phoned me. He phoned me up and he said, um, "You've got some." He said, uh, "You've got some checks that are due to go out." Yeah. He said, "You've got to have cleared funds." And I thought, "Is this what it's going to be like?" You know, I said, "We've." I said, we've got money there, yeah, but it's not cleared yet. And that always, you know, that stuck with me. And to this day, I've never had to, as as Bob, our company secretary, has said, I've never had to go and get my best suit on and go and see the go and see the bank manager. If a customer's got a problem, it's our problem. That's been, I think, one of our mottos really from from the outset. We don't, well, I won't accept people just shrugging the shoulders. Some real practical observations from Steve Halley there, which again puts building a strong financial base as a key to running a successful dealership. And for the final episode of Dealernomics Trilogy, and as if to prove that money makes the world go round, I caught up with Tom Black, the Managing Director of Cyril Johnson Limited of Belfast, who were founded in the early 1950s. Tom joined the company as general manager in 2015 and was appointed MD in November 2020. A chartered accountant, he had spent seven years with Pricewaterhouse and had previously worked in finance roles with a major kitchen distributor and the Belfast Hospital Trust. The first I asked Tom what it was like joining an old established family business. You know, as an outsider to the family, and yeah. I outsider to the business and an outsider to the industry. I wasn't coming in with any preconceived ideas or bad habits or the old adage, this is how we always do it. You know, <laughs> probably being able to bring some fresh eyes and fresh thinking to, to how we do business. And I remember sitting the guys down and saying, so, so I've got this right. We're going to send product out to dealers in December, invoice them in February and start collecting the money from March through to July. And they all said, yeah, like I was the weird one. I don't That's the way we've always <laughs> so, done it. <laughs> Within our industry, you've got the seasonality. You know, we know yes. here six years, and I don't think any one season has been the same as the previous one. You know, it's either too hot, too wet, or, or, or whatever. It's just- so you've got several aspects to your business, which are obviously retail, a strong retail offering at, uh, at your head office, a distribution, manufacture, uh, and, and hire. How do they all fit together? Do they fit together quite seamlessly, Tom? Pretty much. Um, I mean, there's there's a good customer of ours, and I'm not naming him, but I, I remember no. him saying, you guys can't ride two horses. You can't be a retailer and a distributor. And there's maybe some truth to that. I mean, I guess what I have tried to do since I've taken over is is try not to go after the customer's customer. That's not always realistic. I guess no. sometimes there are customers who maybe don't want to deal with a particular dealer or they come to our showroom. And, you know, but we, we don't actively target our customers. So so online, for example, you know, we don't really push the online business. We have our Garden Care Direct website, which carries product at full RRP, so that we're not competing with the dealers' websites. I, I think you know, part of the, the, the process when I, I took over um, as GM initially, we, we kind of had to rebuild the culture and the ethos in, in the business, and, and we spent time with an external agency just looking at the values 
Yes. Uh, and, and getting the business back to that core sort of family feel and family structure. And one of the things, I think it was a guy, John Stewart, it was along the lines of values. It was, it was if you don't stick to your values when they're being tested, then they're not values, they're hobbies. And I guess that's the bit that we try to drive. You know, that, that we, we have core values that we established as part of that process within the company, within yeah. customer care. And, yeah, product and, and value for money, and you know we try to, to use that on a on a daily basis to drive the business. So three examples of dealers at different stages of their business cycle, and you might have noticed something else: they were all men. This industry has long been male dominated. Yes, there are several very successful women in important roles in uh, trade associations and in family owned dealerships, but to date. Very few in the service department, the engine room of the dealership. In 2021, the Cross-Industry Land-Based Engineering Training and Education Committee, LeTech for short, threw the spotlight on the achievements of female service technicians by recognising Laura Basnett and Lauren Savage in their Technician for 2021 awards. Lauren a lover of the outdoors, got the agriturf bug when working on farms when travelling in Australia and New Zealand. On her return to the UK, she enrolled on an agricultural machinery engineering course at Rees Heath. So I asked, what next? Part of the year out was to work in the industry. And so you had to uh, find a company or a dealership that would take you on. Um, and I approached Owners Doe saying, I've, you know, I can, can I take my year out with you? I need to complete um, X amount of work experience hours and then hopefully see if we can continue this on. And they was all up for it. The, the passion that I had for it um, shone through. You know, they took a, they did, but they did take a massive gamble on taking me on because at the moment, I'm really getting into the combine side of work. Mm-hmm. Um, I love, I've been doing a lot of winter servicing. I love going out because you're always out on the farms. You're meeting the customers, building up rapport with them. I think initially um, there was a few customers that was quite surprised, whether that was because I was a young female starting off or because I wasn't from ag background. A lot of people would say like, why? Why are you doing this? But I think now because they've got to know me, um, I've had positive feedback on my work. Hopefully, over time, I can install my confidence in them that, you know, I will be capable and competent enough to work on their machinery. Ideally, I'd like to be able to achieve my master technician at those. So that's being certified in um, case um, makes and models of tractors and combines and just gaining as much knowledge and experience throughout the process really and then just having that confidence to be able to attend a job and just turn up and be able to feel confident with your own abilities to fix that machine each day is so varied and you don't know what you're going to be turning up to now lauren savage had previously been an apprentice with a car dealership but on her days off she went out on jobs with her boyfriend who worked with forestry equipment and i was like this is really cool. I really like tractors and what they can do and go. He introduced me to farming. Like we watched, started watching a few videos, started going out and seeing the tractors and then started with country shows. And I was just blown away. Well, I only live once. I'm really loving this. Why don't I just do it as a job? I wasn't enjoying cars at this point because as much as it's a passion, 
it's just passion on the side you start doing the same thing every day working on the same cars every day it becomes really tiresome being in the tractor industry is completely different like every day is a different day I didn't know where to go what to start with and I knew of, of Lister Wilder anyway like I knew that they dealt in tractors and they were my most local branch of tractor dealing and I was like let's just go in and inquire it might not go anywhere you know it might not be the time but let's just do it and <laughs> funnily enough within a week again I was sat in front of uh, Steve and Tony my interviewers and I was being interviewed for the job <laughs> no there wasn't another girl um female and uh, mechanics and engineers are more common in cars but they I don't th- I didn't sense any apprehension um I just went in and was myself and they loved it <laughs> you know I'm learning every day and I even some engineers who have been in trade 20 years plus and to see them still learning every day I just like the that aspect that, you know, it's never going to get old and boring. So with my colleagues, they're like family. Like I couldn't ask for a better workforce. Um, it helps that, you know, since school, I've been in a male industry, male dominated industry. I'm used to how they are. I'm used to like, you know, just the jokes and everything they have. But it honestly, the, yeah, they're like family. And with the customers, sometimes it's a bit of a shock. You do see them, you go out to these very like rural farms and they're like, oh wow there's a girl <laughs> but they they they're so lovely and you know you're there to do a job and they understand that and I think as long as you get that job done they can't complain. Now both Laura and Lauren came fresh to the industry but I also talked to Poppy Burrow who had lived amongst farm machinery all her life. Her father had an ag machinery dealership in Devon and on leaving school she enrolled at an agricultural college Today, she has just completed an engineering apprenticeship at JCB and is working there as a sales support specialist. However, her early attempts to gain ag engineering experience on leaving college weren't that straightforward. Into a few different places and the first one I went to said that the workshop wasn't the right place for a young woman. (laughs) don't actually think you can really get away with saying that. Um, So I carried on looking and one of my friend's dad's I spoke to him about it one day and he has a Deutz from a dealer in Dorchester and spoke to them about me. And then I rang up. So that was MJ Fry's in Martinstown. um, And they took me on for the summer and I worked for them a good few days a week. I did a mix of a lot of stuff within the workshop and in the stores doing parts and stuff like that. So I got quite a good exposure to the different aspects. The same friend's dad that got me experience at MJ Fry's took me and her to um, grass and muck at Shepton Mallet in 2018. And when I was there, I asked every single dealership and manufacturer I saw for apprenticeship information. A few were sort of like, no, or sorry, we don't have anything. But JCB were the ones that were most interested. Um, and they actually held a conversation with me about it. And I spoke to another apprentice on the stand. And he told me about his experience and then put me into touch with the HR team up here. Um, so I came up to Staffordshire a couple of weeks after that at Grasslands and got interviewed, went through the assessment centre. And then the day after, they offered me a job up here. So the first year I was at college at the JCB Academy, four days yep. a week. And I was in the workplace in JCB Land Power uh, one day a week. And then after I had done that, I swapped around and I was in the academy one day a week and in the workplace four days a week. And I had different placements laid out. So I did quality and warranty, experimental products, test and development. And I was meant to do a dealership placement and a service placement. But uh, that was obviously stopped due to coronavirus. 
I think like in any career, it's not always going to be smooth running and good days. I do think you need that certain amount of grit or determination to keep on even through the slightly rougher times or when things are a bit harder or aren't going to plan. Um, from that respect, I also think you've got to be a good communicator because like yeah. I said, you're not only dealing with the people that you work closely with, but sure. often you're dealing with your customers or your dealer staff. I think the fact that every single day is different something that I hadn't considered until I started here is even though predominantly they're agricultural machines and they're not always in agricultural purposes no. and you really do see different applications of the machines every day which is really quite interesting to see how people take a pretty standard agricultural machine or tractor and make it bespoke or fit for purpose things like that yes. especially if you look sort of globally how different countries have a different take on the best yeah. way to use them so at the moment i'm well literally today in the process of trying to apply to university uh to complete my degree through jcb i've decided rather than an engineering approach to do a business sales professional degree um i think that that is more suited to me because of the how specialist my role is on fast track um, whereas I think the engineering degree would be far too broad and the specifics of the machine I can learn in-house and I have access to them every day, whereas those personal and business skills are something I perhaps need to build on to be able to move up. And I, I think that's where one of the weird sides of sexism come in then is because I feel bad admitting that, that yes. I'm not doing an engineering degree, um, even though I'm still in that product role and my future ambition is to go into a fast-track product specialist um, in a couple of years' time which is still obviously very machinery, very product-based, and that's what I want to do. I want to sort of, in the next few years, know that product from the ground up, inside mm -hmm. out. What uh, refreshing stories from Laura, Lauren and Poppy. And no shortage of enthusiasm nor ambition. Female technicians are commonplace in many other engineering sectors, but the agriturf sector has much to offer the right person, so maybe the sea change starts here. Now, mental welfare issues abound in every industry, but are rarely publicised. Last year, during Mental Awareness Week, I recorded an interview with Tom Johnston, who, as a young boy growing up on a farm in Scotland, was tractor mad. On leaving school at 16, he got a job working for an ag machinery dealer, but soon experienced bouts of depression and self-doubt, which uh, affected his work. Uh, Tom takes up the story. Looking back, there's a, there's a lot of sort of family issues happening and um, sort of social issues and personal issues and stuff like that. And at that point, I hadn't quite grasped what was wrong with me. My yeah. behaviour sort of changed and I was a lot more tight and a lot more... What sort of age were you at that time? So I was 16 to 18 when I was at a class dealership. Yeah. I probably wasn't fully focused. I probably didn't let them have much confidence in me and at that point I probably didn't have much confidence in them either and um uh, did your family understand what was going on yeah they did, they did yeah they did uh, I don't I don't think they fully realized what was happening to me because I, I didn't realize how bad I was sort of thing if that makes sense no. um it wasn't until well, would it be true that, that that probably 10 years ago mental health wasn't uh regarded as seriously uh, as it is I would, today I, would say, I, I think 
being being sixteen, seventeen year old, you're always trying to stamp your authority sort of thing, and um, and and you, you don't want to show weakness, especially to boy, you know, men and stuff like that. You know, or like we don't like to talk about problems and stuff like that. You know, it's it's unmanly, and at that time, I think even if I knew what was wrong with me, I, I probably would have never said anything and just trying to keep being me sort of thing at that point. But Tom left that dealership because of his ongoing mental fragility, but decided on a fresh start and enrolled in the local Oatridge Rural College, where he studied and excelled in a land-based engineering course. Now, learning in a controlled environment gave him greater confidence, and he said that the college were very understanding of his need for ongoing treatment. On leaving Notridge, he took a job initially with a construction machinery dealership, but also had worked part-time looking after the machinery at a local golf course. He soon realised that turf machinery gave him the greatest buzz and decided to take the plunge and set up his own turf machinery man-and-van repair business. So, Tom, that must have been a very brave decision, given what had gone before. Yes, so I started on my own obviously last August it was it was something that at the time it was still this time well actually early last year I was still still dealing with depression anxiety and stuff like that and that's when I finally got help to see a psychologist and at that point I was I was actually working for the Fight Gold Trust which is the local council uh, council courses and I was a mechanic there and I was needing to take a step back and when I was leaving my old boss said actually it'd be a shame for your skills to go to waste so he mm-hmm. said maybe think about starting up on your own it's something I've always toyed with but I've probably never had the guts to go with it and yeah. that's until people start talking to me saying oh we'd, we'd get you in and we'd get you in and we'd get you in so thinking well business is there there's not a lot of people doing it in my area there's no it's all it's all dealership basically there's maybe one or two guys floating about yeah. in the vans but mainly dealerships and yeah and, and how did you how did you get to work i mean w- w- were you able to tap into the place where you worked yeah so the other place i used to work they basically said that they would get me in a day a week guaranteed so that was i was quite comfortable with that a day a week would cover probably most costs basically for the business and still be making a bit of money on the side i did email and put leaflets out and business cards out and stuff like that people went in to see some people as well and Eventually, the, the the business did start to grow, and to be fair, it wasn't until probably the season was finished that that's when a lot more business came in in terms of people winter needing winter services and winter overhauls and sharpening and stuff like that. So, oh, we're we're the most big thing. Yeah, there's there's a lot more people. It's it's such a small community, you know. Whether it's greenkeeping and caring gardeners and that, they, they all they all talk. So, um, a lot of a lot of businesses came from word of mouth. It's quite satisfying people keep coming back to you and you know are wanting you in to do the machines and that that's probably the aspect what is most reward you're always learning you're yeah. always got something to do it's long hours you could be you know in the middle of a field under a tractor on the in mud and stuff like that trying to diagnose a problem you could be in the middle of, you know you could be in a golf course shed at half past five in the morning trying to diagnose an issue but it's very rewarding and the advances in technology, you know, if, if, if a young person's out there and wants to learn about machinery and how things work, I would definitely be open to this industry more than any other. You know, it, people, people need to realise in mental health that it's completely normal not to have good days. We all have them, you know. People hide it a lot better than others and 
people deal with it a lot better than others. But, you know, if, if someone is struggling, it's always worthwhile just to, you know, if, if someone's off colour and stuff like that, just to make sure they're doing all right and encourage them to speak. Because although people might not say they want to speak, speaking is the way forward. What an inspiring story about an issue that is often actually swept under the carpet. And looking at Tom's Facebook page, he is still very busy providing a service to local customers. Now, from a fledgling business to well-established family businesses, where succession is often a ticklish, not to say emotional, issue, and very rarely straightforward. I spoke during the series with business consultant Stephen Short, and I wondered whether there were any similarities with the TV series Succession, featuring four siblings jockeying for position to take over from a strong-willed and stubborn father. It is because a lot of people don't have a clear view of what they want to accomplish in the amount of time. And there are arguments that say different siblings for different parts of the journey. So I have uh, friends of mine in Spain, family business. I'm actually friends with the next generation as opposed to the founding generation. Similar setups, like two sons and a daughter. The eldest son doesn't want to have the hassle of running a big company. They, they are a manufacturing company in Spain. He doesn't want to have the headaches of uh, running a big company. The daughter doesn't want to have the headaches of running a big company either, but she uh, is much more of a process-driven individual, and she's very happy to look after uh, the accounts and the legal and the HR side of things, whereas the youngest son is the guy that has the entrepreneurial spirit, wants to grow the company, wants to be building um, expanding into Latin America and things like that. So there are different stages that, and different strengths that different people can bring to it, depending on what you're actually trying to accomplish. Now, each and every family circumstance is different. Conversations do have to take place, whether in the business or over the kitchen table, and is the only way forward for family businesses. And to get a practical feel for this, I turn to Howell and Emir, known as Ems, Jenkins, who run Jenkins Garden Machinery in South Wales, and who have endured the most difficult and tragic circumstances in recent years. Howell himself has had a serious illness, and he lost his wife, Glynis, who was very much the catalyst for the business, and younger son, Gareth, in recent years. And yet, they both talked with honesty about their relationship, the business today and their approach to customers. So Emma first. I came into the business very, very green, Uh, even after university. Things like, you know, the customer's always right. You know, that's a classic example. Well, (laughs) that was not always right. And and it's it's not not a case of us versus them. But when you've got a customer who comes in demanding warranty when they've walked a blade, you've got to be in a position where you can explain to that customer why they are not right. So I think a lot of the a lot of what dad's taught me over the last 20 years, I suppose, is really to have a backbone. And I yeah. think, you know, had he not done that, I think during his illness and his leukemia, we probably would have failed. Because before, when I was younger, I think my tendency was to just try and please the customer at all costs, you know? And you can only try and please a customer to a certain cost. And, you know, it, it gets to a point where you're doing so much for that customer that actually you're losing money hand over fist. Enter, entering into dialogue with the customer is another thing he's taught me. So um, we always, the reason we take a 40 pound booking in deposit, for example, is that we can try and give as accurate a price as we can on a job. 
um, things like when you sell a machine, try and run through every sort of element of what's going to happen with that machine in its life. So rather than them buy it and think, oh, well, I'll service it at once every five years for £100. It doesn't work like that. Transparency is probably how I would say yeah, that. Yeah. Well, I've got a lot to thank Gems for, um, to be honest with you. Uh, he's made me a dealer principal now, which, of course, is a title but no job. No. <laughs> 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 Uh, no, I've let a lot of them. Um, it's like this. The dinosaurs died out because they couldn't adapt. And so it was at 67, I'm the dinosaur. And it comes to a point where we've got to change, you know. And if you're, you know, because you've done certain things a certain way, if it, it, it might have been right 30 years ago, but it's not right anymore. And then it brings new ideas, you know, a new focus into the business and... Uh, it was his idea now to limit the sales to where we can um, service them, you know. Well, quite right. I, I agree with him. But, uh, you know, it's, it's time that he, he's taken over the reins. He's a managing director now anyway. And that's the way it's got to be, you know. You progress. And um, because if you're old, you think, well, the way I did it is always right. But it's not always right. So there you are. And if you needed proof that it is people and not necessarily products that drive this industry, it was there. Yes, initiative, resourcefulness, hard work and the love of the industry permeates through those who choose to work in the agriturf sector. I would like to thank all my guests who featured in Season 2 and you can find the listing and links to all the full episodes in the show notes. Season 3 launches in the first week of February 2022. Make sure you don't miss a single episode by clicking subscribe in whichever channel you use for your podcasts. I'm Chris Biddle. Thank you for joining me. And I look forward to bringing you more inspiring real life stories from the agriturf sector.